The following audio is brought to you by the Davenant Institute and was recorded at Davenant House. To learn more about or to support the Davenant Institute, go to davenantinstitute.org and scroll to Get Involved. All right. Um, welcome, everyone. This morning, couple housekeeping points. Uh, first of all, uh, I want to draw attention. Our convivium for the first time this year has a sponsor. We are happy to uh, have the sponsorship of the Templeton Honors College and their Journal of Classical Christian Education, Principia. And uh, we're uh, Brian Williams, my friend there who runs the program, was, was hoping to join us this year. He was originally going to, I think, be speaking at, at this last year when it was slated to be last summer. He wasn't able to join us. But uh, he sends his greetings, and I wanted to introduce Eli West, who is a student in the MATS program at Templeton Honors College, and can tell you a little bit about the program there. We have some of their materials there at the book table, and we're also going to have uh, some giveaways of some swag that they sent us. So, Eli. All right. Or you, you, need to, you need to speak into it, actually. Okay, all right. Um, yeah, I don't really have anything uh, formal prepared to say about the MAT other than I'm in it, and I could talk to you personally about it if you have interest yourself or know someone that might be interested. There aren't a lot of graduate programs out there to train classical educators. Um, this program itself is really young. I'm part of the third class. Um, and the paper that I'm presenting here at the Convivium is uh, my master's thesis for the program. And I'm the first thesis writer for the program. So that shows you how young it is. Uh, but it really has been a tremendous asset to me. I started the program in 2018, largely out of um, just a real <coughs> hunger to be around uh, seasoned teachers and feeling like I was thrown into a classical school and tossed some books and said, here you go. And, um, I had a lot of educational philosophy coming from my undergrad, but I really wanted to be around people that thought about pedagogy in a deep way. And I think what the MAT for me, it sold me as advertised as marrying classical philosophy and praxis. And I would say that draw actually really proved true um, in the classes I took there. So that's, that's really what I tout it to really do well, is that it thinks deeply both about, about theory and, and practice. So um, I was already talking to friends last night about some of my experience there. If you want to hear me talk on um, anything from the program, I'll tell you things like uh, why I think conventional grading systems are killing education or means of helping students retain um, vital information or things from class. I told the story to a friend yesterday, um, really encouraging how I had, um, I was just leaving, I'm just leaving a classical school where I had a class two years in a row. And um, on my last day of class, my um, then eighth graders um, recited a poem really word perfectly that we had um, began the first day of class of, of seventh grade, so two years later. Um, the, just things I picked up from the MAT, and um, I could talk at length about different resources through people or books that we read through it. But yeah, it, it is a great program, and it's, it's up and coming, and um, it's very flexible too. So it's designed for working teachers, and I really enjoyed that aspect, is that I'm working alongside people who are in the business um, and doing this right now. So. You can do it, I, they were very flexible with me. I think that's the other thing that I really enjoyed about the program is that um, the professors are very understanding that you have um, a life outside of the school and even a working life outside of the program. So um, if for any reason um, 
you need to take more time on a project or you want to slow down the pace of the program, they're very understanding of that. So um, it's really great in that way for people that are working and have families and things like that too. So, yeah. Thank you. All right, so I'm pleased to introduce our keynote speaker this year who will be giving our first talk this morning. Uh, hopefully many of you had a chance to meet him last night. Uh, we're excited he is our first ever Lutheran keynote speaker. Uh, in fact, one of the first ever Lutheran emissaries to this convivium Irenicum, which is something that we've been really eager to, uh, you know, we, we started off as a reformed Irenics group, and as reformed Irenics, we really want to build bridges with the Lutheran communion. And uh, to date, Davenant has had relatively few contacts within the Lutheran world. And when I first met uh, Dr. Veith, he said, you know, he was really enthusiastic about what we were doing. And I'm like, well, we really want to get, uh, we'd really love to have you at one of our events and, and be bringing the LCMS folks into the conversation that we are seeking to lead in renewing classical Protestantism. So uh, Dr. Veith uh, was for many years a provost and literature professor at Patrick Henry College. He still serves on the board of, board of trustees there. And uh, he is a lifelong educator, an author of over 20 books, including Classical Education, The Movement Sweeping America, God at Work, Your Christian Vocation, All of Life, Imagination Redeemed, Glorifying God with a Neglected Part of Your Mind, as well as over 100 scholarly articles. He is, or is this, is this out of date? Are you currently director of the Cranach Institute? Yes, yes. okay. He is, he's currently director of the Cranach Institute at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he will be speaking to us this morning on the liberal arts and the arts of service, Protestantism's challenge to classical education. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Veith. All right, well, good to be here. Uh, thanks for having a Lutheran. Uh, that was very uh, generous and ecumenical of you uh, to do the uh, morning prayer. Uh, it's a great thing. That made me feel at home as a Lutheran. And so appreciate uh, uh, you and all the conversations I've been having. Um, it's really good to be actually face-to-face -face with human beings. Uh, this is the first conference I've been to. It's over a year. It's not on Zoom screen. And it's so good to be uh, in, the, in the flesh with, uh, with, with folks as we uh, talk about some of these things, both in what we'll be hearing and just in the conversation. So uh, anyway, good to, good to be here. Um, yeah, so... Um, yeah, one of the few fronts in the culture wars that Christians have been waging, just about the only one that we're actually winning is education. Uh, as progressive education just devolves into psychological conditioning, political indoctrination, um, churning out graduates with scarcely any knowledge or skills, Christians are rediscovering and implementing classical education. Uh, yeah, I just heard that Princeton has eliminated their 
Latin and Greek requirement for the classics major. Okay, for the classics major, uh, you don't need to know no Latin or Greek. And this is Princeton. Okay, uh, so in in my main area academics, it uh, in the, in higher education. Um, What's going on there was so frustrating. I am retired now, and I'm sort of glad to be kind of stepping away from this in a, in a certain way. Um, and of course, in our in our uh, elementary and high school education, um, it's just tragic and criminal uh, in many ways how uh, how bad so many of our schools have, have become. But now Christians are the ones who are discovering a very powerful alternative. Uh, now, the reason that parents would send their kids to a Christian school or homeschool their kids used to be to protect them from all the, the bad influences of different kinds that they're getting you know, everywhere else. And that's a legitimate reason, I think. But now, these new classical schools and classical curriculum, classical homeschools, are turning out young people who are outperforming their secularist counterparts academically. So this is an academically superior approach, and all the research I've seen uh, really proves this and, and, and bears it out. Uh, these classical Schools are turning out young Christians who are learned, who are intellectual, who are accomplished, who can do things, who know things, who present themselves well. Uh, they're the sort who will very likely outcompete their poorly educated peers that have come out from regular schools. And they'll be in a position to exert a Christian influence on the culture once again. Uh, my own experience with the products of both progressive and classical education uh, on all educational levels uh, always makes me think of the education of uh, Gargantua. Uh, now, I don't know if Rabelais is one of your great books that you uh, study uh, in your program. Uh, I, I, would er I would warn you that if uh, you, you have Rabelais in your curriculum, your parents are going to object. But the adolescent boys are going to love it. Uh, so, anyway, there's a great scene in uh, Gargantua and Pentagrel um, when Gargantua is a, is a young giant um, and he had been educated for 53 years trying to master medieval commentaries. Uh, time is sort of stretched to in, in Rabelais. So he's been studying and trying to memorize these medieval commentaries, working out for 53 years, but he hasn't quite mastered it yet. Uh, uh, according to Rabelais, he says, uh, at, last, at the last his father perceived that indeed he studied hard, and that although he spent all his time therein, yet for all that did he profit nothing, but which is worse, grew thereby a fool, a sot, a dolt, and a blockhead. Okay. 
whereupon a courtier um, suggested a comparative test with this 12-year-old page who had only studied for two years in the new classical learning that was creating the Renaissance. So he set up a competition between the, the prince, the, this is the land of giants, young Gargantua, who's been studying for 53 years, and this two-year-old, or, or, or this 12-year-old page, you'd say for two years in classical Renaissance learning. And so this 12-year-old child, then they had a test to see which one was, was better. Uh, the, the young child delivered a learned and gracious discourse before the giant king. As Rabelais puts it, all this was by him delivered with such proper gesture, such distinct pronunciation, so pleasant a delivery, in such exquisite fine terms, and so good Latin, that he rather seemed a, a Gracchus, a Cicero, an Aemilius of the time past, than a youth of this age. And it was Gargantua's turn to show what he could do. Reports Rabelais, but all the countenance that Gargantua kept was that he fell to crying like a cow <laughs> and cast down his face, hiding it with his cap. Gargantua was then sent to the pages schoolmaster, Ponocrates, who gave him a comprehensive education that turned him into Rabelais' comic model of a Renaissance man, or rather a Renaissance giant. And the account of Gargantua's education, again, is very instructive for things that we're interested here. Ironically, though, that scholastic education that Rabelais was lampooning was also a type of classical education. The fact is, classical education is a rich, multifaceted tradition which allows for many different variations and emphases. And those, in turn, reflect different philosophical, cultural, and theological commitments. The Reformation itself was a product of the Renaissance approach to classical education. And the schools that the Reformers established to teach the laity how to read the Bible were classical schools of a particular kind. Uh, Gargantua's liberal education included listening to, as Rabelais says, sermons of evangelical preachers. His daily regimen, overseen by his humanist teacher, Panocrates, included Bible reading and worship. Quoting Rabelais, there was read unto him some chapter of the Holy Scripture aloud and clearly every day. According to the purpose and argument of that lesson, he oftentimes gave himself to worship, adore, pray, and send up his supplications to that good God, whose word did show his majesty and marvelous judgment. Uh, for all of his exuberant scatology and iconoclastic satire, Rabelais, writing in France in 1532, supported the reform of the church. His ridicule of scholasticism and his rude and crude depictions of bishops and monks are a little different from what the reformers were turning out. Uh, though Rabelais himself was a monk. 
uh, in this paper, I'd like to explore some of these different approaches to classical education, both historically and as they manifest themselves today. I want to focus on the kind of classical education cultivated by the reformers and how it was distinct from other approaches. This in turn can help Christian educators today as we recover the rich heritage of classical Christian education, uh, showing how we can ensure that it remained both classical and Christian. Um, this paper will outline some uh, broad themes and principles. In the later seminar, we'll look at a specific example of a Reformation classical school, Johann Sturm's Academy in Strasbourg, France, uh, one of whose teachers was John Calvin. Uh, by the way, I'm realizing how confusing that is, that, that text that I threw at you. I should have given a little context. Sturm is giving his plan for the school for the academy at uh, Strasbourg, and, and based on a lot of other experience that he had. But then he implemented this at Strasbourg, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going to add some other things that, uh, about how they did things at Strasbourg that I think are very instructive, including how just some, some, some teaching techniques that I think may give you some, uh, some good ideas. So anyway, that'll be tomorrow. Well, so, what is classical education? Another more descriptive term is liberal education. Uh, though that word has acquired unfortunate connotations of progressivism, uh, the word liberal in this context comes from the Latin liberalis, which means befitting free men. Originally in ancient Greece and Rome, the distinction was between education in the liberal arts artes liberalis, the skills necessary for a free citizen, and education in the servile arts, artes servilis, the skills necessary for a slave. Slaves needed to know how to perform their crafts, do as they were told, and be productive functionaries of the economy. But the free citizens of the Greek democracy and of the Roman Republic had to be educated so that they could be active participants in the deliberations and decisions of the polis. The free citizen had to be able to use uh, his mind at a very sophisticated level. He was responsible for receiving, applying, and transmitting the heritage and achievements of, of the past and his community. He had to be able to express himself effectively in the forum so as to persuade others. He needed to conduct himself with honor and wisdom. Now, the specific list of liberal arts varied somewhat in the classical era. Uh, Plato gave a prominent role to gymnastics. Uh, sports were a part of class. That grew out of classical education, too, if your parents or students uh, wonder about that. You know, doing something exercising the body not for a function, not to uh, you know, develop your muscles so that you can you know, unload a truck or something, but just for its own sake, to develop human strength, speed, and other physical gifts, just as you're developing the, the intellect. But with a Christian appropriation of classical education, 
with a contribution of Cassiodorus and Boethius, seven liberal arts became the educational foundation. The trivium of grammar, dialectic or logic, uh, and rhetoric. These arts would lead to the mastery and application of language. And the quadrivium of arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. These arts would lead to the mastery and application of mathematics. Yeah, even things like music was approached mathematically. Now, medieval educational theorists supplemented the arts, that is, those seven skills, with the sciences, that is, categories of knowledge. Science comes from the word scientia, which means knowledge. These liberal sciences were natural science, the knowledge of nature, that is the objective creation, moral science, the knowledge of human beings and their interactions, and theological science, the knowledge of God. In effect, all knowledge could be included in these categories so that the classical curriculum studied a comprehensive range of subjects, all of which were tied together in some very uh, profound ways. Now, other qualities and features of a liberal education will also emerge. The cultivation of the good, the true, and the beautiful. An emphasis on original sources. A concern for virtue. The imitation of excellence. Reading good literature and cultivating creative and eloquent expression. Study of the language and literature of the Greeks and Romans. Socratic questioning so as to lead students to a personal discovery of truth. Uh, some characteristics uh, became clear when progressive education began with the 19th century German university model, continuing with Dewey and other modern theorists reacted against the classical model. Whereas progressive education is highly specialized, liberal education introduces the student to a wide range of subjects in an attempt to develop all of the powers of the human being. Whereas progressive education emphasizes what is new and tends to denigrate the past, liberal education values the achievements of the past and studies works that have stood the test of time. Whereas progressive education promotes change, liberal education seeks to transmit the civilization to the next generation. Today, many Christians, but also a lot of non-Christians, in reacting against the failures of progressive education have been rediscovering what is, in effect, the educational tradition of Western civilization. Now, much of this discovery has been piecemeal. One person discovers part of it, and someone else discovers another part. And as it's been developing, people keep discovering more aspects of this very, very powerful, but very comprehensive and rich uh, approach. Uh, Dorothy Sayers brings back the trivium. Mortimer Adler promotes the great books. Christian educators discover the progemnus mata, a powerful method of teaching writing. Classical colleges bring back disputations, 
in which students publicly argue to support a thesis, as in Luther's academic exercise that sparked the Reformation. The classical Christian school movement, pioneered by Douglas Wilson and put into practice by hundreds of schools and thousands of home schools now, is bearing impressive fruit as it continues to, to grow, growing both in, in numbers and in breadth and complexity and, and quality. Sometimes, though, one element of the classical liberal arts is mistaken for the whole. In the 20th century, universities recognize that higher education on the German model, all based on um, science, specialization, uh, that that could result in graduates kind of like Gargantua, who, who might know a great deal about a narrow field but remain essentially uneducated outside of that specialty. In response, universities crafted so-called liberal arts requirements, ensuring that students sample a wide range of disciplines, including a big dose of the, quote, humanities. Yeah, liberal arts requirements in colleges, those are, that was a 20th century invention uh, developing after uh, World War II. And uh, that was good, and at its best, it combined the virtues of the German model, the scientific approach to education, the specialties which we needed, and supplement that with liberal arts uh, preparation. Okay, unfortunately, as it developed, a lot of those required classes were just as specialized as every other program in the university with little effort to integrate the learning or to approach the different fields in a comprehensive, humane way. And so you, you, you would take, a, you had to take some course in history and you get to pick what course it is. And so you take a course in you know, medieval uh, Polish women's uh, uh, crafts. Okay, and that was what you knew. And it was taught by a graduate student writing his dissertation on that subject. Very interesting and very worth knowing. But that was your history. And, because every, and then the same way with your science class or your literature class. And so no two graduates even took the same classes, right? Uh, one of the successes of Patrick Henry College where I've been was to have a true core where all of the students do have the same, which means that it can be planned and developed in different uh, areas covered. And so upper division classes, the professors know what the students have already studied. And you don't always have to start from scratch. Um, but anyway, that's an example of how the, the kind of the progressive mentality is sort of undercut the whole genius of the liberal arts. Um, and sometimes the elements of liberal education have been obscured by misconceptions. Uh, Dorothy L. Sayers was a catalyst for the current revival of classical education. But she had not get it completely right. She wrote perceptively about the importance of the trivium. But grammar, logic, and rhetoric are not simply developmental stages. 
there is a developmental element to them, as our look at Johann Sturm's school will show. In fact, I was surprised in going back to that, how a lot of what she said does describe what was done uh, in, the, in the, the early classical schools. But the, the trivium refers more directly to discrete subjects and phases in the mastery of language. You learn the basics, you learn the vocabulary, you learn the grammar, then you learn to think in the language, and then you learn to express yourself creatively and persuasively in the language. That's grammar, logic, and rhetoric. That's how it is supposed to function. Um, and more profoundly, the trivium corresponds also to the faculties of the mind. It's developed in particular by uh, St. Augustine, who sees the mind is divided into three parts, a sort of trinity in the, in the, in the human intellect. The memory, which corresponds to grammar. The understanding, which corresponds to dialectic. And the will, which corresponds to rhetoric. And th that psychology done in the Middle Ages and also in the Renaissance. And, and, and it's still very, uh, it's, it's still very, very applicable, I think. Thus the trivium produces a blueprint for learning any subject in depth with the entire mind as a student progresses from knowledge through understanding, through persuasion and creating personal application. Well, Sayers was very helpful in focusing on the trivium. She was out and out wrong about the quadrivium. Arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy did not stand for the subjects. She said it did. That is the content that students study in the later grades. Those are liberal arts. The knowledge that the arts are applied to are the natural, moral, and theological sciences. There's very little attention in classical education to the sciences. To, to, I'm not talking about you know, chemistry and, and, and physics, although that's part of it. Those are natural sciences. But the idea of knowledge, the content comes from those uh, three sciences. Th these things are still in the vocabulary of education especially higher education. I used to be the dean of the School of Arts and Sciences. And that did not mean painting uh, and chemistry kinds of things. It's, a, it's an allusion to the, the, the union of the liberal arts and the liberal sciences, which is so productive throughout our, our history, including in the rise of natural sciences, another invention of the classical uh, approach to education. Um, the quadrivium has to do specifically with mathematics, something I would say I was also kind of neglected in, in kind of a lot of classical education where we are now. The liberal arts comprise the two dimensions and means of human learning, language and mathematics. Forgetting that the liberal arts include mathematics, Indeed, comprises four of the seven liberal arts, majority of the liberal arts, has distorted classical education and damaged its appeal. Thus, in universities today, the term liberal arts has become synonymous with humanities. 
As a result, universities play off the liberal arts, which they think means literature, philosophy, history, and the like, against the, what is now much more desirable, STEM subjects, that is, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Never mind that Western science grew from the soil of the classical liberal arts. Today, in progressive education, science and the humanities are separated from each other to the impoverishment of them both. Whereas classical education brings them together and relates them to each other. Well, I'd argue that's what we urgently need today. Classical educators need to recover the quadrivium just as they have recovered the trivium. The opportunities are vast since mathematics education is floundering today in the progressive schools. They don't have to teach math and students hate it and, and yet it's become so, so important in our technological, uh, scientific uh, 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 emphasis. But more important than the need for the STEM professions is the role of mathematics in rebuilding a Christian worldview. Mathematics is a bracing tonic for those inclined to believe that there are no absolutes, that there's no objective truth, and human beings construct their own realities. The answer to that is, well, what about math? Okay. In both the humanities and the sciences today, separate though they are, it is commonly said that the universe is meaningless. But mathematics is a sheerly mental operation which, amazingly, is found to describe, account for, and even predict the nature of the external objective world, which suggests yeah, there's a mind that looms behind all physical reality, which we know as, 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 as God. The quadrivium employs mathematics not only in the numeric operations of arithmetic, but in the spatial realm of geometry, the aesthetic realm of music, and the empirical observations of astronomy. Astronomy was not taught, they didn't study you know, black holes and uh, things like that. They did things like learn how to predict eclipses. Okay, the, it was a mathematical, applying mathematics to what they observed in the heavens uh, and seeing that, that, that order. As such, mathematics is an integrative discipline just as language is. It teaches students to think objectively and to recognize the reality of forms and patterns and order. That in turn has moral implications as well as aesthetic implications. As the classical educators explain the quadrivium, arithmetic is about number. Geometry is about number in space. Music is about number in time. And astronomy is about number in space and time. Being able to think in terms like those is an important legacy of the liberal arts that we've kind of forgotten. And it's I think, up to classical educators to, to, to bring that back. 
But even when liberal education is clearly understood, there are variations and options. Um, Bruce Kimball has written a history of liberal education. It's really very, very interesting and, and instructive. Um, in this history of liberal education, Bruce Kimball has shown how classical educators of different times and cultures have always vacillated in emphasis between logic and rhetoric. The Greeks stressed dialectic, the pursuit of truth. The Romans stressed rhetoric, the formation of effective and influential citizens for the Roman Republic. In the Middle Ages, the conversational pursuit of dialectic was formalized into an emphasis on logic, leading to the rationalistic systems of scholastic philosophy and theology, which is the, the heart, really, of, of scholastic education. The Renaissance version of classical education emphasized rhetoric with its creativity and expressiveness. To be sure, the genius of liberal education is integration, the embrace of both alternatives, rather than asserting one over the other. Why shouldn't a student be adept in both logic and rhetoric, language and mathematics, science and aesthetics? The highest achievements of liberal education is the so-called Renaissance man, such as Leonardo da Vinci, who was a master, I mean, talk about the STEM disciplines, master of science, technology, engineering, and mathematician, master, if there ever there was one, who was also an artist of the most supreme and highest glorious accomplishment. Those aren't contradictions. It's only contradiction in the, in the, the, the modern disassociated mind that wants to sort all those out together. The whole purpose of a classical education is to reassociate our sensibilities, to use T.S. Eliot's term, instead of being so fragmented to, to bring them together again. Um, and you had people like Sir Philip Sidney, who was a statesman and theologian, a soldier, and a poet. Such a level of integration is hard to sustain, of course. Moreover, different worldviews manifest themselves in different kinds of education. Medieval Catholicism tended to be highly rationalistic. So, of course, such universities would put logic at the center of the education. The Reformation, though, had a different basis and grew out of and promoted a different kind of liberal education. Now, it's no exaggeration to say that the Reformation grew directly out of Renaissance classical education. It just did. Uh, it began at the University of, of Wittenberg, which is one of the new institutions built very consciously around the new Renaissance learning. In accord with the educational methodology of Adfontes, to, to the sources, the Renaissance curriculum focused on the reading of original sources instead of secondary scholarship. In the field of theology, whereas the scholastic universities studied commentaries and 
systematic treatises such as Peter Lombard's Sentences, the Renaissance University studied the Bible. The catalyst for the new Renaissance classicism was the rediscovery in Western Europe of the Greek language. The great Renaissance humanist Erasmus edited and published the Greek New Testament, which differed at many points from the Latin Vulgate. It was in the course of preparing lectures on the Bible that one Wittenberg professor, Martin Luther, realized the significance of the passage, the just shall live by faith. Luther posted 95 theses for the purpose of holding an academic disputation, an exercise that was a staple of both medieval and Renaissance universities on the topic of indulgences. That disputation never took place, but others did, such as Luther's Heidelberg disputation on the theology of the cross. And universities throughout Europe would be the forums for the theological debates of the Reformation. Later, Luther would use Erasmus's edition of the Greek New Testament and his colleague Philip Melanchthon's expertise in Hebrew to translate the Bible into the vernacular, the first translation from the original languages since the Latin translation of St. Jerome. The New Renaissance curriculum emphasized rhetoric, which carried over into the Reformation's emphasis on preaching. The new liberal learning stressed the formation of the free individual human being, which carried over into the Reformation emphasis on personal faith. The Reformation, in turn, was a catalyst for the founding of new schools. The immediate goal was to teach everyone possible, not just clergy, but laity, not just men, but women, not just the socially privileged, but peasants, how to read the Bible. The schools that the Reformation started were not just Bible reading schools, they were classical Renaissance schools. The Reformation churches continued to employ classical education for centuries, though in a particular way. Uh, Thomas Korchak uh, has defined the Lutheran educational tradition through most of its history as classical education plus catechesis. That is, is the liberal arts combined with catechetical instruction. Now, in the history of Lutheran education, which I, I suspect it also tracks with education in the Reformed tradition, I can't really speak to that, I, I haven't studied that, you would maybe know it more. I, I suspect they're very similar and overlapping, as, as what is the case with Sturm, where they overlap completely. Um, so I'm going to talk about what was happening in the Lutheran tradition and the Lutheran schools. But again, I, I suspect that it's applicable in the Reformed tradition too. Uh, anyway, in his book on the subject, Professor Korchak shows that the theological conflicts that the Lutherans had to contend with were accompanied by educational conflicts. Now, the enthusiasts, they're kind of the first group that the, the reformers had to deal with, those who believe the Bible, or the Holy Spirit speaks directly to a person. The enthusiasts wanted neither the liberal arts, considering them too worldly, nor catechesis, 
opposing the emphasis on doctrine rather than personal experience, which they favored, and called for schools that simply taught how to read the Bible. Nothing more. Later, the pietists would also consider the liberal arts to be too worldly and the catechism to be too doctrinal, calling for schools that taught the Bible and that also prepared young people for a vocation. Okay, they were still kind of Lutheran uh, in that respect, the emphasis on vocation, but they construed that very narrowly in terms of kind of how the word is, has become used today. Your vocation is your, is your job. So they saw the value of that. So teach the Bible, teach, teach a job, job training. Later, the rationalist in the Enlightenment and, and thereafter would oppose both the liberal arts and catechesis in favor of a so-called scientific education. But in each controversy, the Orthodox Lutherans would insist on liberal education plus Christian catechesis. Those alternative approaches to education and anti-intellectual fundamentalism, vocational training, progressive scientism persist today. Classical Christian educators must contend with them all and make their case that they offer a better alternative. But the Reformation schools also found themselves in conflict with other kinds of classical education. The first educational reforms put forward by the Reformation were in reaction against medieval scholasticism, a variety of classical education, as we said, that put logic, along with Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, at the center. Uh, Professor Korchak summarizes the issues. He says, in order for the church to be free of these Thomistic and Aristotelian teaching, it was necessary to remove them from the classroom and replace them with a different approach to the liberal arts. The simultaneous need to reform the church and education was apparent to Luther early on. In a letter to Jodocus Trutfeder in 1518, Luther said, To explain myself further, I simply believe that it is impossible to reform the church unless the canon law, scholastic theology, philosophy, and logic, as they are now taught, are thoroughly rooted out and other studies put in their stead. The studies that were put in their stead were the liberal arts as cultivated by the new Renaissance classicism, emphasizing rhetoric as accompanied by literature and other, quote, humane studies. Taking the lead in this project of educational reform was Melanchthon, Luther's friend, the author of the Augsburg Confession, and arguably the greatest humanist scholar next to Erasmus. But in time, tension grew then between the Renaissance and the Reformation, a conflict that was both theological and educational. Renaissance educators such as Erasmus believed that a liberal education was sufficient in itself to shape its students in a life of virtue and spiritual enlightenment. Catechesis in the law and gospel was not, strictly speaking, necessary the artist liberalis would result in a fully empowered human being who is free. The exaltation of the humanities manifested itself in a high view of human potential. So the so-called humanist learning tended to become, in the, the, the more modern sense, humanistic. Humanist learning 
uh, indeed, humanistic learning. Professor Korchak again summarizes the issues. While humanists like Erasmus were given to viewing the liberal arts as a starting point for a progressive life of moral improvement, Erasmus's contention that there's still a scintilla of perfection, it's a quote from him, in a child. The, the child has a, okay, fallen, yes, but there's a scintilla of perfection that you can work on and build up and cause to flower. His contention, there's still a scintilla of perfection in the child, led him to believe that the arts had the ability spiritually to reform a person. The evangelicals could not accept that, that premise. For Luther, the corruption of the human soul was complete, voiding Erasmus's optimistic view. And of course, the controversy between Luther and Erasmus occasioned Luther's uh, decisive break uh, with Erasmus and kind of the Renaissance humanism in his treatise, The Bondage of the Will. And yet, the Reformation schools did not abandon their commitment to the liberal arts. The result, says Professor, says Professor Korchak, was a new form of humanism, one which historian uh, Joseph Dole calls a confessional humanism. Unlike the humanism of the 15th and early 16th century, this confessional humanism placed catechetical instruction as the first priority. But then again, catechetical instruction with its grammatical memorizing, dialectical question, and rhetorical confession is itself an application of liberal pedagogy. And, and, and in the ordinary process of, of, of catechesis, you see um, classical pedagogy lives on even in circles of sort of forgotten, forgotten it. And humane learning was thought to fit well with a distinctly Christian framework. As Reformation uh, historian Stephen Osmond has said, humanities became for Protestant theologians what Aristotelian philosophy had been to the late medieval Catholic theologian, the favorite handmaid of theology. Yeah. So, now, the Erasmian faith in classical liberal arts education as a self-contained religion also persists today. Not all classical schools are classical Christian schools, and the very power of the liberal arts can vest them with a religious aura. Notice how the vocabulary of classical uh, education theory is replete with theological terminology. Uh, for example, we have a, a canon of great books term originally used for the list of books that constitute Holy Scripture. And for some people, the great books, according to one canon or another, there are various canons, as you know, for some people, the great books have that kind of authority. Uh, I had a friend, a forceful proponent of the liberal arts, in fact, one who helped interest me in the liberal arts uh, originally. But he was not a Christian, at least not then. And he, he told me, so you have your Bible, I have the great books. For him, literary and philosophical masterpieces constitute a secular scripture to which he can look for inspiration 
and guidance. He'd say, you get your sense of transcendence from going to church. He'd say, I get my sense of transcendence from listening to classical music. He would sometimes say, and I bet my sense of transcendence is, is higher than yours that you're getting in church. Well, now he and I would agree about politics. We'd agree about the decadence of modern life. We'd agree about the value of Western civilization. But he was a humanist for whom classical liberal arts is all you need. Okay, we, we lost touch, but uh, the last I heard from him, he wrote me and mentioned something about how he was, uh, was getting ready for church, which tells me that I think maybe he, he, came, he came along to my, my way of thinking eventually. Uh, but yeah. Now, note the other theological terms I just used in telling this story. Transcendence, inspiration, those are theological terms. We could add creation all the time, epiphany, revelation. It's very easy to turn classical education into a religion. This is the testimony to just how wonderful classical education is. It's no substitute for Christianity wise Christians recognize this and when they do when the distinctions are made liberal education and the Christian faith can complement each other very well but sometimes an education that seems to provide all the answers that offers pleasures instead of disciplines that makes fewer demands and that exalts the student beyond all measure can be twisted into a substitute for Christianity yeah, I, I heard from uh, uh, students and their parents who attended excellent liberal arts colleges that um, caused them to, to, to lose their faith. Now, a liberally educated person, even when externally disciplined by the classical virtues, can still be a desperate sinner. Indeed, an excellent and dangerously equipped sinner whose education makes him capable of doing worse things than he otherwise would have been able to do. And this is the lesson of classical education itself. Socrates' most brilliant disciple was Alcibiades, who would betray his native Athens, first to the Spartans and then to the Persians. Classically educated by Socrates, no less. Aristotle's most notable pupil was Alexander the Great, whose accomplishments surpassed everyone and conquered the known world. And how much more could you do? And yet he shed rivers of blood and met his end when he could not control his own appetites and overdid it during a, a drunken feast which killed him. Uh, as a young man. But a Christian classical education, the liberal arts plus Christian catechesis, can give rise to another kind of empowered human being and another kind of freedom. 
Now, there's another difference between the Reformation classical schools and many other liberal arts schools, including to this very day. Apologists for the liberal arts often distinguish between their approach, which pursues its subjects as ends in themselves, and so-called vocational training. That is, with educational programs aimed at the pragmatic end of teaching young people an occupation, trade, or profession. But the Reformation discussions of the liberal arts nearly always relate them to vocation. Not in today's narrow occupational sense, of course, but in light of the Reformation doctrine of vocation. That is to say, a liberal education, as the Reformers <laughs> conceived it, equips its students for service to their neighbors. Doctrine of vocation is not about self-fulfillment, as we often hear it talked about even in Christian circles. Not about finding your great gifts that you have. It's about the neighbor. It's about how God has equipped you to serve your neighbor. It's about service. Now, this complicates the classic distinction between liberal and servile education, resulting, too, in a different notion of the freedom that liberal education cultivates. Now, this is evident in a confessional statement, no less, that defines the Reformation's commitment to a classical liberal arts education. In Luther's large catechism, one of the official confessions of faith for Lutherans, the explanation of the commandment to honor one's father and mother ends with a discussion of parents' responsibilities. And Luther writes, For if we wish to have excellent and apt persons, both for civil and ecclesiastical government, we must spare no diligent time or cost in teaching and educating our children that they may serve God and the world. And we must not think only how we may amass money and possessions for them. For God can indeed, without us, support and make them rich, as he daily does. But for this purpose he has given us children, and issued this command that we should train and govern them according to his will, else he would have no need of father and mother. Let everyone know, therefore, that it is his duty on peril of losing the divine favor, to bring up his children above all things in the fear and knowledge of God, and, if they are talented, have them learn and study something, that they may be employed for whatever need there is. To have them instructed and trained in a liberal education, that men may be able to have their aid in government and in whatever is necessary. Have them instructed and trained in a liberal education. If that were done, God would also richly bless us and give us grace to train men by whom land and people might be improved, and likewise well-educated citizens, chaste and domestic wives, who afterwards would rear godly children and servants. Parents are charged to bring up their children in the fear and knowledge of God, and also, according to the Latin translation, to have them instructed and trained in a liberal education. That men may be able to have their aid in government and whatever is necessary. It seemed then that Lutherans would be confessionally bound, on peril of losing the divine favor, no less, 
to give their children a classical liberal arts education. Now, but as it happens in our church, when you subscribe to a confession, which you have to do, the confessional su subscription is, must be to the German version, which leaves out the reference to the singly liberal education and speaks only of formal study. So, man. So, a commitment to the classical liberal arts as such, though highly favored by the reformers and the confessors, is not an absolute confessional mandate. However, a commitment to education is is the parents' chief duty to educate their children for both the spiritual and the earthly kingdoms. The purpose of both the formal study in the German version and the liberal education, as the Latin puts it, is service. That is the purpose of education for Luther, as well as his fellow educators and confessors, is vocation. Now, Luther is referring here to the importance of parents equipping their children for both of God's two kingdoms. God's eternal kingdom, to bring them up in the fear and knowledge of God, and God's temporal kingdom, that men may have their aid in government and whatever is necessary. This two kingdoms framework, described here as both for civil and ecclesiastical government, explains why the Lutheran educational tradition consists of liberal education for the temporal kingdom and catechesis for the eternal kingdom. In those terms, the competing approaches to education the reformers oppose confuse those kingdoms. The humanists, in thinking a temporal education is sufficient, neglected our citizenship in the eternal kingdom. The enthusiast, in thinking an education for eternity, or an education for eternity is sufficient, neglected our citizenship in the temporal kingdom. The pietists understood the necessity for both, but their focus on economic callings narrowed the true scope of vocation and of Christian service. Now Luther taught that God reigns in his temporal kingdom through three estates. The church, the family, and the state. Is, is the person present who wrote that article about the three estates in Ed Fontes, uh, I, I just came across that. Is he or she present? Too bad. It's an excellent article on Luther Doctrine of the. Well, I think that's Lachman's. Oh, that's Lachman. And that's, uh, uh, I'm a student. Yes. He's okay, tell him how much I appreciate that. Because you, we, we usually look at Luther's theology of, of culture. Okay, two kingdoms, vocation. But an important part of it is this, his belief of the doctrine of the estates, which p pulls those together and shows how they actually c uh, need to be carried out in practice. Anyway, just briefly, uh, he taught that Christians have multiple vocations, multiple vocations. You don't just have one, you may have one job that you use to make a living, but you have vocations in your family, in your citizenship, in your community, uh, in, your, in your church, what you do in your church, these are all parts of your, your, your Christian calling, where you are to love and, where God sends you to live out your faith in love and service to your neighbors. So, again, Christians have multiple vocations in all three of those estates. In the church, as pastors, lay people, 
various offices and roles in the congregation, the family as husband or wife, father or mother, son or daughter, and any of the other positions in the extended family, the state as ruler, magistrate, soldier, or simply a citizen. As for what people do to make a living, as in the common meaning of vocation today, Luther included that primarily as part of the family estate, or rather, as he called it, the, the household, as how the family supports itself. In that late medieval economy of peasant farmers, craft guilds, and feudal landholdings, most economic labor was inextricably tied to the family. And that was true whether you were a farmer, the whole family works on the farm, or whether you were a, uh, a, a middle-class craftsman, you know, the whole family worked. If you were a cobbler, everybody had a part in making the shoes. And if you were a king, talk about a family a business, uh, or a noble, uh, all of that couldn't be separated from family. And it's important to remember that then that in our economic endeavors, the main thing is our family and, and not necessarily a, a particular, and when we neglect our family because of our jobs, we're sort of missing the whole, the whole point. Anyway, uh, Luther also sometimes writes about vocations within the state, as with the offices of government, law, administration, military, and so on. Now, that passage from the large catechism says that a liberal education is the best preparation for vocations in all of the estates. Luther specifically refers to government, well-educated citizens, and improving people in the state. Okay, that's, that would be the, the vocations, or vocation of citizens in, in, in the polis, the political uh, estate as well as the vocations of the household, those who improve land, servants, that is to say employees, parents, and wives. Notice what he says about chaste and domestic wives who afterwards would rear godly children and servants. Luther believed that women too should be educated and with a liberal education, which he believed would help them uh, not only as mothers, but also as governors of the household servants. Now, Luther's not advocating vocational education in the modern sense. He explicitly rejects the commonly held notion today that the purpose of education is to train young people so they'll get a good job and make lots of money. He tells parents, we must not think only how we may amass money and possessions for them. God can take care of that. In another work, Luther says that job training should be conducted outside of school in apprenticeships. Another very... Uh, interesting uh, educational idea that we could do more with. Rather, Luther says, parents must give their children an education that equips them for service in both of God's kingdoms. We must spare no diligence, time, or cost in teaching and educating our children that they may serve God and the world. Service to God, service to the world. In his tract to the councilmen of all cities in Germany that they establish and maintain Christian schools, 1524, Luther explains how liberal education, he explains how liberal education does this. He discusses vocation and education in the same terms. He says, 
uh, hitherto the sophists have shown no concern whatever for the temporal government and have confined their school so exclusively to the spiritual estate that it was well nigh a disgrace for an educated man to marry. He had to hear such remarks as, Behold, he's turning secular and does not care to become a spiritual, just as if their state were alone pleasing to God and the secular estate, as they call it, were altogether the devil and unchristian. Yeah, most of the school and certainly the universities were built around preparing uh, clergy. And they were about the only uh, ones who often who were, were literate in any way. But, but here's Luther's pivotal insight that led to his doctrine of vocation. He rejects the notion that the spiritual orders are more holy than the temporal orders. Medieval church taught that a person who desires Christian perfection must become a priest, a monk, or a nun. This required taking vows of celibacy, thus forswearing participation in marriage and parenthood, and poverty, thus forswearing ordinary economic activity. Um, they also took a vow of obedience, which in practice meant that they had to obey their church authorities, but they were no longer under the legal authority of the state in which they lived. In the medieval church, the word vocation referred solely to a call to the religious orders. Luther extended the concept also to the temporal orders. Thus, the table of duties in Luther's small catechism refers to being a husband, wife, parent, child, master, servant, day laborer, worker, and the like as being, quote, holy orders. The same term that was used for those who had taken clerical vows. Luther's educational reforms promoted this priesthood of all believers. Priesthood of all believers is really another name for the doctrine of vocation. But the New Reformation schools went far beyond teaching lay people how to read the Bible. Rather, since vocation opened up the secular realm as a proper arena for the Christian life, they provided a liberal education. Again, quoting Luther's treatise. But, you say again, granted that we must have schools. What is the use of teaching Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and the other liberal arts? We can still teach the Bible and God's word in German, which is sufficient for our salvation. I reply, alas, I know well that we Germans must always remain brutes and stupid beasts. Love to read Luther. It's so, it's so profound, and now and all of a sudden you're, you're laughing at, uh, at his jokes or, or how he says things. Uh, we Germans remain brutes and stupid beasts, as neighboring nations call us, and as we richly deserve to be called. But I wonder why we never ask, what is the use of silks, wine, spices, and strange foreign wares? When we have in Germany not only wine, grain, wool, flax, wood, and stone enough for our needs, but also the very best and choicest of them for our honor and ornament. Arts and languages, which are not only not harmful, but a greater ornament, profit, honor, and benefit, both for the understanding of scripture and for the conduct of government, these we despise. We cannot do without foreign wares, which we do not need, which bring us in no profit, which reduce us to our last penny. Are we not justly dubbed German fools and beasts? Now here's the common notion of the liberal arts elevating human beings above their natural barbaric state. But Luther goes further, saying that these arts, particularly the ancient languages that were foundation of a classical liberal arts education, are gifts of God. 
He says, truly, if there were no other use for the languages, he said, this alone ought to rejoice and move us. They're so fine and noble, a gift of God, with which he is now richly visiting and endowing us Germans, more richly indeed than any other land. Luther then relates the liberal arts while acknowledging their intrinsic values, gifts of God, to vocation. He says, if then there were no soul, as I have said, and if there were no need at all of schools and languages for the sake of the scriptures and of God, this one consideration should suffice to establish everywhere the very best schools for both boys and girls. Namely, that in order outwardly to maintain its temporal estate, the world must have good and skilled men and women, so that the former may rule well over land and people, and the latter may keep house and train children and servants aright. Now such men must come from our boys and such women from our girls. Therefore the thing to do is to teach and train our boys and girls in the proper manner. What such an education can give both boys and girls is not specific job training, but the ability to rule well in the natural, social, family, and economic orders. Ties into the idea of dominion that uh, Brad was talking about last night. Now, it is highly significant that the Reformation schools rejected the model of servile education and instead began providing for all classes of people, even in that hierarchical society of 16th century Germany, and for girls as well as boys, a liberal education. That is one designed specifically to equip human beings for freedom. Once peasants received such an education, it did not stay peasants for long. The Reformation was soon accompanied by unprecedented social mobility. This was due in part to the church's efforts to make all Christians not only literate, but liberally educated. In time, this education for freedom would lead to the rise of social and political freedom as well. The liberal arts could liberate human beings precisely by cultivating their intellectual and creative powers and to draw out their individual talents. This too, Luther, related to vocation. Luther recognized how liberal education cultivates original thought and independent thinking. He writes, if children were instructed and trained in schools or elsewhere where there were learned and well-trained schoolmasters and schoolmistresses to teach the languages, the other arts, and history, they would hear the happenings and the sayings of all the world and learn how it fared with various cities, estates, kingdoms, princes, men, and women. Thus they could in a short time set before themselves as in a mirror the character, life, counsels, and purposes, success and failures of the whole world from the beginning. As a result of this knowledge, they could form their own opinions. How Luther valued it. They could form their own opinions and adapt themselves to the course of this outward life in the fear of God. Draw from history the knowledge and understanding of what should be sought and what avoided in this outward life and become able also by this standard to assist and direct others. They could form their own opinions. That is, they could become independent thinkers. This education for Luther also has a moral dimension. A, uh, we talk about the, the first use of the law, just externally restraining external uh, uh, 
uh, evil so that human beings can live together in a community. Uh, you know, the equipping of Christians to assist and direct others. That is to love and serve their neighbors, the purpose of every vocation. Thus for Luther, liberal education was vocational education. Not in the sense of job training, but in the sense of equipping young people to love and serve their neighbors in their families and their societies. This does set off Luther to a certain extent from perhaps the best known theorist of the liberal arts, Cardinal John Henry Newman, recently beatified by the Roman Catholic Church. A liberal education, in his view, involves knowledge pursued for its own sake. This is opposed to mechanical instruction, which employs knowledge for other ends to be useful. Cardinal Newman's idea of the university is a realm unto itself for the pursuit of the higher good, unsullied with the demands of the world. It makes the university a sort of secular monastery. It may owe something to the ancient Catholic tradition. It goes back further, though, to Luther's philosophical nemesis, Aristotle. In the politics, the great philosopher not only develops the notion that knowledge pursued for its own sake is a higher good, but specifically rejects the concept of service. The object also which a man sets before him makes a great difference, says Aristotle. If he does or learns anything for his, for his own sake, or for the sake of his friends, or with a view to excellence, the actions will not appear illiberal. But if done for the sake of others, the very same action will be thought menial and servile. While Aristotle believed that doing things for others is not fitting for a free man, and thus that education that benefits others is inferior to that pursued for its own sake, Luther had a very different view, not only of education, but of freedom. In his treatise on the freedom of a Christian, Luther said that true freedom manifests itself in vocation. That is, in love and service to one's neighbor. I was struck by the line in the, uh, in the morning prayer we just did, uh, that, that in, God, in, in your service we find perfect freedom. And this concept of freedom as coming from service is unutterably profound. And Luther says in on the freedom of a Christian, a Christian ought to entertain this view and look only to this object, that he may serve and be useful to others in all that he does, having nothing before his eyes but the necessity and the advantage of his neighbor. And as our Heavenly Father has freely helped us in Christ, so ought we freely to help our neighbor by our body and works. And each should become to other a sort of Christ, so that we may be mutually Christ, and that the same Christ may be in all of us. That is, that we may be truly Christians. If freedom for the Christian is expressed in service, it would follow that the kind of education associated with freedom, that is, the liberal arts, would also exist to serve the neighbor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this audio from the Davenant Institute. You can find more resources from the Davenant Institute on Facebook, our podcasts, and the Davenant Press. We invite you to subscribe to our newsletter, Advantes, or read our blog, both available on our webpage. To support the Davenant Institute, 
go to dabnantinstitute.org and scroll to get involved.